guests this morning, or guests, and want to give them as much time as possible. So, uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine is with us. He's going to teach during the Bible study hour this morning, and then he's going to preach in the evening service. And uh, we were just this past weekend up in Tacoma. Uh, we were both speaking at a conference there for the Evangelical Reformed Church. Those good folks. And it went well. And you were also up, uh, up in Bremerton, right, uh, before that. So uh, they've been in town since Tuesday and have been zipping around. And they're going to actually uh, get up on the Oregon coast tomorrow. Or is it Tuesday you're going to do that? Tomorrow. Yeah, right. So they're going to try to get a little sightseeing in. So I've recommended some places, but you folks know a whole lot more than I do. So you might, if you have some favorite places for them to go, then you might suggest those to them. And then they'll forget everything you recommend and go to the places they were planning to go to. But anyway. <laughs> well, uh, Glenn and I have known each other a little while. How, long, how many years have we known each other now? Yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. So, um, and even before that, people kept telling me, and I think telling you, we needed to meet each other. <laughs> and we finally did. So, uh, Glenn, at that time, was professor of history at Central Connecticut State University. And I think your university made it to the College World Series this year and did pretty well. You probably didn't know, even know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I remember seeing the, the, the scores and I saw Central Connecticut State, you know, and I thought, wow, that's pretty great. You don't often see that, you know, in northern school. They must have just gone down south and got a bunch of guys from Florida and Texas. But anyway, uh, so Glenn uh, is an authority on the Reformation. He did his doctoral work uh, in France and uh, on France and uh, has a lot to share on the subject of the Reformation, but today he's going to do something a little different, I think, um, and it actually ties in very nicely with the sermon I'll be preaching. I'm preaching on um, the 104th Psalm, which is a psalm extolling the, the wonders of creation and the glory of God as the Creator, and I know you're going to tie into that. Um, but uh, he's a co-host of the Theology Pugcast and connected with all sorts of things, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Reflections Ministries in Atlanta. And they now live in South Bend, Indiana, where they were with both of their kids, and then one of them moved away. How audacious was that? She actually got a job in another state. So anyway, but they're still there with uh, their son and daughter-in-law and one of their grandchildren, so that's great. Anyway, oh, okay, so I won't need to do a, uh, a handoff to you, Glenn. So without further ado, Glenn Sunshine, come on up. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, I was asked for the conference in Tacoma. Uh, the, the, the theme of it was building Christian culture in a hostile world. And I was asked to give uh, an introduction, what is culture? And you know, on, on one level, you know, look it up in the dictionary. Come on. But uh, I, what I, I decided to do, uh, I, there, there was an episode of the podcast a while ago, actually several years back I, by this point, uh, where I did what uh, I called a word, word ramble, where you take a word and then you just look at all the things associated with it and, and connected with it and so on. And... Uh, 
It, people seem to like it. And at the at, when I was in Bremerton, one of the guys from Tacoma uh, asked me to do a word ramble on sacrament, which of course I hadn't prepared. Um, so I decided that for looking at culture and, and coming to understand culture, I thought it would be good to take a look at uh, at words, words that are related to it. Where does it come from? Those kinds of things. So uh, it turns out that the word culture comes originally from a Latin verb, which means, quote, to till, to cultivate, or to protect, all of the above. And so it was first used, you know, till and cultivate, it was first used in connection with growing crops, you know, agriculture. Uh, agriculture, by the way, is from the Latin agere, meaning field, plus culture, to till, to cultivate, and so on. Uh, that's where we get agrarian from. It's from the same word for, for, uh, for field. But you also have things like viticulture, one of my favorites, uh, comes from Latin word venus, meaning uh, vine, uh, pointing us toward wine. Uh, so that's growing grapes. Or horticulture from hortus, meaning garden. And we're going to be coming back to horticulture because it turns out that there's a lot of stuff uh, related to the development of culture, the way we use the word, in Eden. So keep horticulture in mind for the moment. But there, there were several other words that it turns out are, are connected into this. Well, actually, actually, before we go there, let, let's look at a couple of other things. Uh, when we, the original sense of culture had to do with growing crops. And let's say you're doing agriculture. You're going to till, cultivate a field. What do you have to do? Well, you have to go to the field and, uh, well, clear it. You got to get rid of the weeds. If you're in New England, you got to get rid of the rocks. Uh, in case you don't know this, the only thing New England soil produces well is rocks. Okay, so so you got to get rid of the rocks. You got to get rid of the trees. All this kind of thing. You then have to break the soil up. You and all of those kinds of things. But there's a great deal of preparation work that has to be done before you can actually do the agriculture. So what you're doing actually is you're taking a set of, well, uh, raw material, and you're developing it. You're uh, eliminating the problems, clearing out the, the, the problems for, for what your project is. And then after you have done that, you begin to do the production. So there's a sense that what, what culture involves, what cultivating involves, is first of all, taking something that is raw material that is undeveloped, and then developing it. And because of that, we talk about, well, for example, a cultured person. What's a cultured person? It's someone who has looked at, well, you've taken the raw material, the guy's intellectual abilities and all of that sort of thing, and you have then cultivated them in the form of education, in the form of teaching them, in the form of helping them develop a, uh, a sense of taste with respect to the arts and, and the finer things in life and all of that. And when you do all of that, you end up with a cultured person, someone who has been developed in all of these different areas, who has cultivated all of these different uh, parts of life uh, and, and understandings. 
Another word that is related to culture is the word cult. Now, when I use the word cult, uh, it, you know, it, it conjures images of David Koresh or, or something like that. Uh, that's sort of the popular use of the word, but if you're dealing with the social sciences, it means other things. Uh, so, for example, uh, in sociology, a cult is a particular form of religious organization coming out of the work of a guy named Ernst Trelch. Trelch said that there are uh, basically three types of, uh, of religions uh, out there. Uh, you have you know, sort of your, your, what he called spiritualists. These are your, your hermits, your people who just develop their idea of spirituality on their own. Then there are cults. A cult sees itself as a, an elite minority in a sinful world, in an evil world. Uh, this is Strelch's definition. And uh, as a result, since it's an elite, they have high membership standards. It's hard to get in, and it's hard to stay in. You've got to continue towing the line. Okay. Uh, a good example of this, by the way, would be the, or the early Anabaptists. Okay. And I'm, I'm not going to go into that, but that would be an example. But today, maybe you could look at a group like the Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's not the only definition. The one that is actually closest to the Latin use of the word cult comes from anthropology. And to an anthropologist, a cult is simply the set of beliefs and practices that define membership in a religion. So if you believe these things and do these things, you're part of this religion. That's all it means. It's a completely neutral word. So we can talk about a Lutheran cult a Presbyterian cult, a Catholic cult. And it's not, it's not a negative term. It just describes what you do as part of that, that religion. Now, beliefs and practices become important here because when we're talking about culture, one of the things that is a key element of culture, I would argue, is worldview. What is it that you believe about the world? What is it that you believe about the world and your place in it? When you answer those kinds of questions collectively and begin living it out, what you produce is a culture. So that set of beliefs that, that uh, are at the core of who you are or at the core of, of your social group are going to be enacted. You're going to act them out, and that is what produces culture. So we've got the word cult there. Interestingly enough, the word colony is also connected in here. And that, again, goes back, well, the Roman, the Roman use of the word colony, uh, colonus, is, is a bit different from ours. In Rome, a colony uh, was a, basically a place where soldiers went when they retired. When they were no longer, you know, they, they've served their 20 years in the Roman army, then Rome gave them a plot of land and, uh, and a place to live. Notice the plot of land, because what are they going to do? They're going to cultivate. So the colony comes out of the same idea of cultivation. And the idea of colony is one that we need to keep, again, in the back of our mind as we are thinking about what it means to have Christian culture here.
Okay, so that that's a lot of the word of sort of words and connected uh, to them. But but let's let's look at one. There are other uses of the word culture, of course. You know, we we don't only use culture in in connection with agriculture or high culture in the arts and cultivation and all of those kinds of things. We also use it when we're talking about yogurt. Okay, so yogurt, um, active cultures. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that there's bacteria that they stuck in the milk or that got into the milk somehow that are living, that are active, that are, uh, well, changing what they're in. They're taking the raw material of the milk and turning it into something else. Uh, in fact, you can say what active cultures in yogurt do is reproduce and multiply, fill the milk and subdue it. That's actually pretty close to what we are talking about here. Uh, in terms of subduing the milk, what are they doing? They're reforming it, they're restructuring it, they're turning it into something that is more developed than it was before. And from yogurt, let's go back to the garden. Okay. So, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, there are a number of things that we see um, in the text related to human beings. The first of them, let's just start with Genesis 1. God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so on. Okay. Then it says, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made him. Male and female, he created them. Then he says, reproduce and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so what's going on here? Theologians argue all the time about what exactly the image of God means. Uh, you know, is it rationality? Is it morality? Is it spirituality? Is it our uh, relationships? Any of these things. If you talk to an Old Testament prof, though, he'll tell you, no, it isn't any of those. Because, you see, in the ancient Near East, the world in which Genesis was written, when someone was described as the image of, well, it's a polytheistic world, an image of a god, it meant something very specific. That was a title that kings claimed for themselves. So the king of Babylon was the image of Marduk, the principal god of Babylon. And the point that that title was supposed to make is that that god gave that person authority to rule. Authority to rule under the god, under the god's authority. It's a delegated authority to rule the kingdom. So it's a royal title. And I would argue that when you look at Genesis, that's exactly what's going on. Because let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. These two things are linked directly in Genesis 1. So what the image of God is, it's less a, a description of qualities that we have and more a job description. Our job is to act as God's regents in the world. Think Denethor as the steward of Gondor. He's not the king. He doesn't own it, but he governs it. He rules it. Now, 
to understand the rest of the command, we have to look at the trajectory of what we see in Genesis 1. Okay, so Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.2, and the earth was, <clears throat> excuse me, the earth was without form and empty. It was formless and empty. Well, that poses a problem. We've got the creation, but it's formless and empty. If it's formless and empty, what do you have to do? Form it and fill it. So when you look at the six days of creation in light of Genesis 1-2, in light of the problem, what do you see? You see on days 1, 2, and 3, God forming the world. And on days 4, 5, and 6, he's filling it. So day 1, light and dark. Oh, and by the way, there's a correspondence. 1 to 4, 2 to 5, 3 to 6. So uh, the first one is light and darkness on day 1. Day 4, sun, moon, and stars. Day 2, separate the waters above the, uh, the firmament from the waters below the firmament. So sea and sky. Day 5, fish and birds. Day three, dry land and vegetation. Day six, land animals and people. So what you're seeing here is a structural description of what God is doing to solve the problem of forming and filling. And of course, on the seventh day, he rests. Okay. So, why am I telling you this? Well, there are a couple of reasons here. By the way, there, there's a whole lot more going on in, in Genesis 1 on a whole lot of different levels. You see, uh, in a lot of ways, the whole thing is, a, is an attack on pagan beliefs about the world. Um, you know, so when we're talking about the sun, moon, and stars, he doesn't even call them the sun and the moon. He just says they're lights. You know, they're not gods. The pagans all thought the sun and moon were gods. They're not gods. They're just lights. Okay. Um, seven days. Why seven days? Well, it turns out that if you go to uh, the Baal cycle, the, the legends, uh, the, the myths surrounding the god Baal, you will find that in one of the cities, I think it might have been Ugarit, I'm not sure, but in one of the cities, Baal, makes, Baal builds his own temple. He creates his temple. It takes him seven days to do it. In Genesis, they're saying, hey, Baal, you made one temple in one town. God made the entire universe in the time it took you to build that temple. Oh, and by the way, the creation itself is a temple. Think about Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Solomon's temple, when God descends on it, it talks about his glory filling the temple. Well, the whole earth is full of his glory. This is God's temple. So there, there's a polemic going on here. There's an attack on pagan religions. It, you know, that's another part of what's happening here. But that has nothing to do with what I should be talking about. Um, back to forming and filling. Um, notice what God tells Adam and Eve, well, we don't have their names yet. Notice what God tells humanity after he makes them in his image. Reproduce and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
God's been forming and filling. Now God is telling us to fill and form. God creates the world, creates all kinds of raw material and everything else. More on that in a minute when we get to Eden. But in a very real sense, Genesis is saying, you know what? The creation itself is complete in the sense that everything is made. But the creation isn't complete in another sense. It needs to be developed. It needs to be subdued. Why subdued? Remember when we're doing a field, what's the first thing you have to do? You got to subdue it. You got to clear the land. You got to get rid of the stones, especially in New England. You got to get rid of the trees. You got to get rid of the bushes, all these kinds of things, and prepare the soil. You're subduing the land for agriculture. That's the kind of subduing we're talking about here. It is taking the raw, cultivating, taking the raw material that God has provided in the world and developing it. Now, we have to be careful here. We are developing it under God's authority as his stewards, not owners. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's not ours. We don't own it, but we act as stewards, and our job as stewards is to develop it. Um, think about the parable of the talents. The one thing you don't want to do is bury the talent. You want to take the talent and develop it, to do more with it, to, well, multiply it. In the same way, this is our job of stewardship in this world. God gives us raw materials. We are to develop them. <clears throat> but we develop them not as owners but as stewards, always keeping in mind that everything we do, we are doing under God's authority and for him as the true owner. More on that in a minute. So what, what, does subduing the, what does taking dominion and subduing the earth look like? Well, we've already seen that part of it is starting families um, because we've got to fill the earth. But starting families is also involved in subduing the earth because it's a big job. We can't do it by ourselves. We need more, <clears throat> excuse me, we need more workers. We need more people to do this job. The family then becomes the basic building block of society, and society it, through the families work through societies to build culture. Okay, so it's worth noting that God makes man in His own image, in the image of God. He makes them male and female. He makes them. So. What we see here are two things that are important. One of them is that men and women are equal before God. They both bear the image of God equally. But the second part of this is that the image of God is best born not by the individual, but by the conjugal couple, the husband and wife, together. They are the ones that bring forth the complete image of God. It's, in, in a sense, um, the married couple where the two become one flesh uh, becomes a two-dimensional picture of a three-dimensional God. Okay, So we've got that going on here, too. But, okay, so we need families, we need to have children, we need to do all of these kinds of things, reproduce and multiply and fill the earth, but we also then need to understand what it means to, to subdue the earth, what it means to build culture. And that's where Genesis 2 helps us. Um, in Genesis 2... Uh, what we find is after God creates Adam, he gives them some job descriptions. You know, he, he gets assignments. And, thank you. 
And the thing about this is we have to remember that work is not a necessary evil, which is sort of a common attitude that people have. You know, we, you know the idea is that we want to work and put away money so that we can retire and no longer work. I mean, theoretically. I'm retired and it hasn't slowed me down. But the actuality, that's a pagan idea of work. Because what you see in Genesis 1, well, Genesis 2, at the beginning of Genesis 2, so God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested from all his labors. God himself is depicted as a laborer. If that's the case, you can't think of labor as being evil or as being bad or something like that. Rather, it's a positive good, and it's what we as God's image bearers are meant to do. So moving forward in Genesis 2, we get a description of what this looks like. The first part is, um, the first thing that happens is God says, it's not good for man to be alone. We're pointing toward family at this point. But he then says, he brings all the animals to Adam and tells Adam to name them. And he says, whatever he names them, that's what their name is. Now, this isn't, God bringing the animals and Adam saying fluffy, you know, Fido or something like that. He, what he's doing is he is naming the, well, the types of animals that are out there. He's naming horses and, and cattle and porcupines and armadillos and so on. That's really important for two reasons. First of all, it's an act of dominion. The person who names something has authority over the thing that's named. That's why they can give it a name. So naming the animals is, is the first act of dominion from Adam. But secondly, we need to understand something about Hebrew. Uh, in Hebrew thought, the name indicates the nature of the thing that's being named. This is why, for example, when people have significant encounters with God in Scripture, God will frequently change their name. He's exercising dominion over them by, by giving them a new name. But the new name is given because there's something different about the person. When the person experiences this transformation because of his encounter with God, God gives him a new name because there's something different about him. Abram becomes Abraham. Israel becomes Jacob. Uh, excuse me, Jacob becomes Israel, the other way around, and so on. Okay. So naming the animals meant that Adam had to understand the nature of the animals to give it its proper name. In other words, he had to study them. He had to engage in what we call taxonomy, which is actually at the foundation of science. So naming the animals is simultaneously an act of dominion and the beginnings of science. Then God sets up a garden and puts Adam in it and tells him, you need to tend and protect the garden. Oh, by the way, tend and protect. Cultivate, to till, to cultivate, um, the, the verb that we get cultivate from, to till, to cultivate, or to protect, goes right back to what God tells Adam in the garden, tend and protect the garden. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have to take, again, a look at the context. When God plants the Garden of Eden, there are several things he tells us about it. 
he says that in it, the trees were a delight to the eyes and their fruit was good for food. He also tells us that the region around the garden is full of all kinds of natural resources. Now, he, he gives you sort of a geographic description and he tells you what's in different places. So, tending the garden is going to involve a couple of things. One of them is art. Why? The first thing we're told about the garden is it's a place of beauty. The trees are a delight to the eyes. If we are going to tend the garden, we have to tend to beauty. So art becomes part of God's mandate to humanity. Develop art. We've got science. Now we'll add art. Uh, the food is good to eat. Great. Now we're talking economic production, uh, providing for needs and things like that. No, by the way, it's not just trees. We've got all these other resources we can work with. So we have here a mandate to do a whole lot of different things, all of which really involve culture. And remember, the job is not just to... The job is to subdue the earth. We've got a garden here. Here's your prototype. Now take it and make the whole earth like this garden. And I'm giving you the resources to do it. You're going to need to have kids. You're going to need more people. We'll, you, but, but that's all part of the job here. Note, however, once again, it's not just tending the garden. It is taking the raw materials and developing, cultivating them. But it is also protecting the garden. Now, people talk about, well, what, what does the garden need protection from? Uh, the usual answer people will give is God knew Satan was coming and he was trying to warn Adam, and there may be something to that. But I think that there's another dimension here as well, and it goes back once again to Adam as a steward, not an owner. The earth is the Lord's, not Adam's, but Adam still has dominion on the earth. And what that means is that as we develop the resources we are given, we need to do it in such a way that we do not destroy the world. We do not destroy the, re the, the um, you know, as we're extracting resources or developing the earth, we need to do it in a way that is frankly ecologically responsible. Strip mining is a bad idea. Okay, it, it destroys the land. It is not protecting the land. We need to certainly extract the resources, but we need to be careful how we do it so that we do not destroy the thing we were told to protect. So there's a, um, uh, there's a kind of environmental responsibility built into all of this. So all of this points to you know, God's mandate to humanity to develop culture, to build culture. And in fact, what we see in Scripture the ideal trajectory. Now, there, there, well, there's a problem in the middle here, and that's that Adam and Eve sin. Let, let's pause and take a look at that for a moment. Why do we tend to think of work as drudgery? If work is supposed to be this meaningful thing that, that where we're living out God's created mandate for who we are, why, why do we dread Monday morning? Well, the answer actually has to do with sin. You'll notice that after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and God pronounces judgment, he never curses Adam and Eve. He pronounces a judgment on them, but not a curse. He curses the serpent, 
and he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. But what does he do? He tells Eve, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. And he tells Adam, I will greatly multiply your pain, same word, in producing food in your work on, on, on the ground. What is that, what, what is that, a, what, what is that saying? Your job is to reproduce and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's now going to become a real pain. Okay? It, the, the, the judgment on Adam and Eve ties directly to the job God gave them. You know, you, 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 know, you, you decided that rather than doing things the way I told you to do, rather than acting as my steward, you decided to shift your allegiance to the serpent and do things his way. Now what that means for you is that as you carry out your mandate, which you are going to do, it's never rescinded, as you carry out your mandate, because you have chosen not to do it my way, it's going to become a lot harder and frankly more painful for you to do it. On the woman, on the woman as the childbearer, the reproduce and multiply thing is is the pro, is is where it's going to land, and the men whose principal job ends up being subduing the land in the two halves of this, that's going to be a pain for him. So the judgment falls exactly on the areas where we are given dominion because we refuse to exercise our dominion under God and chose instead to exercise our dominion under the serpent. Now understand, women are involved in subduing the land. Men are involved in reproduction. Okay, it sort of goes both ways. But the principal responsibility of them, because of the very nature of our biology, the principal responsibility for reproduction is for the woman and for subduing the land is the man. That's just you know, the way it works out. And that's why the judgment falls that way. That's why we think of work as drudgery now. The interesting thing, though, is when we look at the total picture of Scripture, it's sometimes described as the four-chapter gospel. We have creation, which is good. We have the fall into sin. We have redemption in Christ. And then we have restoration, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. What's interesting is that when you look at it, we start in a garden and we end in a city. The new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. The trajectory that God set in place right from the beginning that we are to build culture, we are to subdue the earth and all of that, it's, it was never rescinded for us and under God it, the work will be completed we will eventually end up in what's really a garden city. We will have developed, or, or um, through God's work, through us, or you know, depending on your eschatology, how this works out, we will still end up in a place where the culture is fully developed, where it is done in a way that is not abusive of the land, because it is still a garden city, but that trajectory of calling us to build culture is going to be completed at the end because of God's action, uh, the body of Christ doing its work in this world because of redemption, 
because of Jesus' resurrection, which is not only a prototype of our resurrection, but a prototype of the resurrection of the entire cosmos. All of these things are going to happen. And in the end, what we were called to do initially by God, God will carry out and fulfill uh, in the eschaton. So uh, that's, uh, that gives you some ideas of what culture building looks like, where it comes from, why the Reformed tradition in particular really insists on the cultural mandate, that it's our responsibility to do these things, um, and maybe a couple of other ideas and bad jokes. So, um, any questions? What should we do? What you should do... Well, the reason why I ask that is like the, the evangelical world today has kind of two... Two answers to my question is preach the gospel. Don't worry about culture, I guess. Worry about culture, that is the gospel. And I'm kind of wondering if, where you stand on that. I guess. We need to understand what the gospel is. Um, to your typical evangelical, the gospel is the gospel of salvation. And that is a phrase that's used a few times by Paul. That's not Jesus' preferred way of describing the gospel. Jesus describes the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. And at this point, we need to understand what a kingdom is. Um, you know, we think of a kingdom as a territory ruled by a king, and that's one possible definition of the Greek word. But the, the, the word also simply means the exercise of royal authority. So wherever royal, the, the kingdom is present whenever the king is exerting his rule, is exerting his authority. Um, now, here's the question. If it's the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, where is Jesus's, what, what kind of authority does Jesus have? Where's, where's that authority found? Well, uh, in the Great Commission, which people who want to talk about evangelism focus on, uh, it begins with all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So if the good news is the good news of the kingdom, we need to think about how Jesus' authority is exercised in this world. And given that that authority is all authority, what isn't included in all? Yeah, there, yeah well, actually nothing. Nothing is not included in all. All authority is given. So what that means is we need to be living out Christ's authority in every area of life. We need to live it out in our work. We need to live it out in our uh, recreational activities, in our families, in our, our schools, in our, uh, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our politics. I, that's a scary one for a lot of people. But we, we need to be living it out that way because that is where Jesus' authority is. The good news is that Jesus is... Jesus is a Lord. He is Lord of all. We, granted, yes, we do need to, to preach the gospel. We need to tell people the good news of salvation through Christ. But salvation is more, it includes the personal salvation, but it's more than that. It is the authority of Jesus being extended into all the world, taking everything that's broken and fixing it. So that's, that would be my answer to you. It's not an either or. Because we need to understand that the gospel is more than personal salvation. It's the gospel of the kingdom. We see um, 
the reduction or removal of those curses as we move our allegiance to Christ and away from Satan? Uh, yeah, and in fact, historically, the church has recognized this. If Jesus came to redeem us from the effects of sin, that's more than just forgiveness. It, it, it should be redeeming us from the effects of the curse. And now, because of medical technology, it took a while longer to get to the pain in childbirth, but we're doing much better with that. Interestingly, though, um, the early Christians understood, unlike their pagans, first of all, the goodness of work. Uh, but secondly, they also recognized that if work is good, toil, drudgery, and so on is bad. That's an effect of the fall. So if there are ways that we can minimize that, that's a good thing. And the net result is, well, first of all, the early monasteries required the monks to do manual labor because that's what we're made to do. But they, they sort of began thinking, you know, if something can be done by an animal rather than a man, that's better because that frees the man up to do more creative work. If something can be done by a machine rather than an animal, that's even better. And the result is by about the 6th century, monasteries are building water wheels to mechanize mindless, repetitive work like grinding grain. The Romans knew about water wheels, but they didn't bother building them because it's capital intensive and they had slave labor. The, the Christians say, well, wait a minute, slave labor or not, and they did Christianity really... Christianity and slavery is a complicated story, but Christians have never been a fan of it. But why not harness resources that God has given us, moving water and so on, through these various gearing mechanisms and so on to grind grain, to operate uh, bellows and smithies, uh, trip hammers and smithies, to full cloth, eventually to make paper, uh, to saw lumber, all of these kinds of things. We, we, if we can do it with a machine, we should, because that's eliminating drudgery, it's eliminating toil, and it's a way in which Christ's redemption of us from the effects of the fall can be lived out in practical terms by us, who are, after all, the body of Christ. And along with this, by the way, I neglected to mention we are also a colony, remember that? A colony of heaven. We are to be living that out in the here and now. So, yes, this should be one of the effects of it. That was my question. Oh, that was your question. Okay. I'm just going to point out that God's promises in, in birth to the people, of, to Israel, even to their livestock, that if they would choose life, that that would go, that, that curse would be removed. Eventually, yeah. Um, you... you it's kind of hard to argue that pain in childbirth is completely removed apart from, like I said, medicine. But, yeah. Anyone else? Could you talk about, you know, often there is, I hear, the, the attributes of God being equated with the image of God. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the short answer is that things like rationality, morality, spirituality, relational ability, all of those kinds of things are related to the image of God, but they're not, I would argue, they're not part of the definition of the image of God. 
They are related to the image of God because they are tools that God has given us to accomplish the work he has given us to do. This is why I don't get bent out of shape when, uh, when people talk about how intelligent animals are. Now, their argument is we're just, we're really no different from them. We're in continuity with them. That sort of misses the point. The image of God doesn't consist in rationality. You know, it does, you know, um, uh, you know, rats live in communities and they cooperate with each other. They play with each other. They do all of these kinds of things just like we do. Well, no, not really just like we do. But again, it's, ir it's irrelevant because that's not the core meaning of the image of God and that's not what gives human beings their dignity. So I would say these things are related, but they're tools. They're not the, the center of what the image of God is really about. Just following up with that, then, the um, image of God, then, you say all men are created in the image of God. They're all called to do these things. You do see all men, whether they're Christian or not, exercising, dominion, and having children. Sure. They made in the image of God. But as Christians, we are given the special help to do that well. Right. Yeah, the problem with the fallen world is that, um, well, geez, uh, John, he talks about the whole earth is under the control of the evil one. Satan is the god of this age, or the god of this world, or the prince of this world. These are all titles that go to Satan. So we can't help build culture. We can't help but do that, because that's fundamental to what we are. It's just a question of who we're doing it who our allegiance goes to, and the net result is that, well, we do have not just a change in our allegiance to God, but we do have the Holy Spirit, too, who assists us in the work that we're, we're about. It's worth noting, anyone know who the first person in Scripture who is described as being filled with the Spirit is? My favorite trivia question. The worker guy. Um, Bezalel. Yeah, household name, Bezalel. Bezalel, very good. Um, Bezalel, Bezalel was the, the person who was put in charge of building the tabernacle. And God says, I have filled him with the Spirit and given him skills in all kinds of crafts and everything else. The first person filled with the Spirit in Scripture was an artist and a worker, a craftsman. That, that tells you, you know, the Holy Spirit, yes, is there to help us do our work. Kind of piggybacking on forming and filling, mm -hmm. I mean, would you look at, this is the ESV, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils breath of life. In other words, there was a difference before God breathed, or uh, King James, soul. So I was wondering if you could unpack that, some thoughts on that, because it kind of piggybacks into your forming and then filling. You didn't leave them with no soul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the word there, in Hebrew and actually sometimes in Greek, the word for soul is sometimes connected to the word life. It's translated as life. Um, it's, um, there's a very close connection between the two. The significance of that, I think there's a sense in which you're right, forming and filling is, is what's going on there. He's formed and then he's given life. He's, you know, it's filling him. 
but it seems to me the really strong significance there is a recognition that human beings are composite of body and something else. You as a person have a physical side and a non-physical side that are united and that's what makes you you. This is fundamentally the problem on a theological level, one of the problems with the whole, whole idea of transgender. What it says is what, what was breathed into you, what your soul is, is different from what your body is. There's a disconnect between the two. In scripture, the two of them are so tightly united that you can't, you, you can distinguish them in a sense because you can talk about different aspects of who you are, but you can't separate them. You are a united being. You know, like I say, we can, you know, just like I can talk about my arms or my legs or my head or something like that, um, they don't exist independently of my whole body. In the same way, I can talk about the, the soul or the spirit or something in distinction from the total person, but in actuality, you can't separate them. They're, they're, they're inextricably tied to each other. And that, that's what that verse is pointing to. Which also separates us from the animals because God didn't breathing into them living souls. So your rat community, you know, is a good example. He's not breathing souls into these rats. Yeah. You do you do see the breath of life and the word the word breath is actually in Hebrew and Greek could also be translated spirit. You do see animals having the breath of life, but you don't you don't see what you're talking about. Yeah. This is I think the city started this um this little tension, I think, is going on in my mind in terms of image of image of God as man. You're saying it's I'm going to use the word merely uh, reach, reach it, vice regional. So, but why do we then talk about the idea as like say abortion is a sin because we're killing the image of God of man? We should accept all people as they're the image of God of man. I'm not sure I understand the question, but let me take a stab at what, what I think you're saying. That, that it seems that it has been defined before, and I've heard you guys talk about this, is that the image of God, we as image bearers, it's not because we're merely vice regents of his will, divinity creation, but because we do bear into certain uh, characteristics and say communicable attributes of God. Yeah, again, I would say the communicable attributes are tools. Now, okay, why is it that, you know, if, if the image of God is, as I sort of put it rather crudely, it's, if it's a job description, why does that give each human being unique dignity? Okay, let, let, let is, that, is that the direction you're going? Okay, if you are an ambassador from a country, you, in a very real sense, are that country's representative in, you know, let's say France. You know, an American ambassador in France is the representative of the United States in France. If you attack that ambassador, that is technically considered an, an act of war because you are attacking the country that sent him. So as God's ambassadors on the earth, as his regents, as his representatives, an attack on any human being is an attack on the God who sent them. And let me add another thing. This is something that people don't get kind of regularly. Any time that you put any 
characteristic of a person as, as something that determines their worth. You know, whether it's race, whether it's uh, a gender, uh, well, let's not call it gender, let's call it what it is, sex. Um, it, it, whether it's um, social status, whether it's educational level, whether it's ability or disability or whatever, anytime you use that to judge the worth of a person, you are committing idolatry. And you are frankly also insulting God literally to his face. That's how important the image of God is in terms of establishing human worth. Okay. Um, so speaking about that, I once heard it described, and I'm sorry if you touched it at the very beginning, um, as the image of God also can be expressed as the ability to create a future. So like, God is a creator, animals work off of instinct, uh, human beings have the image of God, so they don't just work off of instinct, they are animals, but they're also the image of God, so they create their own future. There's also like a... Uh, whatever limited or limited means, but the freedom of the will to create. Um, have you, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I would I would include that as the list of, of things that God gave us to enable us to do our job, and I would say that that one is vitally connected to our job, because in order to develop culture, we have to have some sort of idea of where we're going. We have to be able to envision a future. We have to have the creativity to think new things and to work toward their accomplishments. So I'd say that that's really central to the idea of the image of God that I've been presenting. I was just going to bring up the fact that a person can have a job and be a very poor employee. And when we think about the image of God and sinners, um, the image of God is still the job description. They are failing to carry out in the way that they're supposed to. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, I think that's very help, a very helpful distinction. I think we see that in the life of David as he's fleeing from Saul. He recognizes Saul as the Lord's anointed, a very unfaithful king, but it's not his, he does not consider it within his purview to overthrow the king. God deals with the king. I think that's really helpful for us to consider. Um, I think a, a trap that people can fall into sometimes with human dignity is to think that People have inherent dignity, and therefore, how fair is it for God to judge someone? Like, there's a there's a distinction between us being hands off because that's God's image, and God dealing with His image directly in judgment. Yeah, and this gets this gets into a complicated situation um, because because yes, that's absolutely true, but at the same time. In society, we have to exer exercise judgment, you know, there, because, you know, uh, well, we see this, let's, let's tie it directly to the image of God. We see this in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because man is made in the image of God. Now, the significance of that is that if I kill another person, that person is made in the image of God, so that is an attack on God himself, and therefore, I, I'm liable to judgment. Um, uh, uh, but even on, on lo lower levels, you know, theft, uh, other kinds of attacks that may not result in death, all kinds of things, we are obligated to exercise judgment. Uh, not because the person lacks dignity, but because, because he does. Because he does have dignity. 
And as a result, since he has dignity, actions have consequences. You are responsible for your actions. And therefore, when your actions result in disorder or harm or something like that, consequences must follow. Because otherwise, we're stripping you of your, frankly, of your dignity by saying, basically, what you do doesn't matter, or you are incapable of making good decisions, or you are something less. So actually, judgment in this world is an act that affirms a person's dignity, uh, their agency, their ability to act, and so on. This is where compassion sometimes uh, can be dehumanizing, where we preclude uh, the, the fact that, or we eliminate our instruments, thinking the fact that this person, because this person has dignity, is responsible. Uh, instead, we, we more or less assume that the person is just, you know, entirely victimized and has no agency at all and therefore needs to be uh, cared for in the way we would care for animals. Yeah, it, it's worth noting, if you look at um, the Old Testament's teaching on, call it social responsibility to the poor, the main provision in the law for this is the gleaning provision which is a way of saying, yeah, you know what, you can't grow your own crops or, or, or you know, you're widowed or whatever. You have the right to a living on the basis of other people's farms, frankly. But you've got to work for it. You've got to go out and collect this stuff because your action is important here. Um, it's not just a matter of giving charity. Now, there are alms in Scripture, but alms are given typically to people who cannot work or who are in an emergency situation where they need relief immediately. The goal is always to move them off of charity and get them back on their feet or at least to affirm their dignity by allowing them to work to get what they need by gleaning or whatever. So, yeah, it, you know, the, the, this issue of dignity is, is right there. And the problem is that if you teach people that uh, they're going to live off of, uh, off of some form of charity, whether it's uh, welfare or private charity or something like that. What you're doing is you're depriving them of dignity, and you're saying essentially you're worthless. You know, you can't, you can't do anything for yourself. Uh, you earlier talking about our direction, our sense of direction, where we're going with all this. And I heard it put that uh, the... Uh, the cultural mandate uh, is what, or rather, yeah, the Great Commission rather, is what the cultural mandate looks like after the resurrection. There's an integration, there's our calling, and it's properly fulfilled and directed in the Great Commission. Okay, um, I, I think that the, there are three different things we need to keep in mind here. One of them is the cultural mandate. One of them is the Great Commission, and the other one is the glue that holds them together, and that is the Great Commandment. Okay, so let's, let's pause at the Great Commandment, because this is really, I think, the critical one here. Um, so the lawyer comes to Jesus and says, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Now, we tend to focus on, on the first thing he says. That isn't really his point, because... Well, as an example, someone once asked 
uh, Karl Barth, the, the Swiss theologian, great theologian, asked him what the most important thing he'd learned in theology was. And his answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Something every child knows. When the lawyer asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, he tells him something that every Jew knows. It's the Shema. It's the thing you guys recite multiple times a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, it's a child's answer. But he adds the stinger. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That, from what I understand, no Jewish commentator to Jesus' day ever talked about that verse. We have no record of it. Jesus is highlighting that. And, you know, you see that this is really where, where it, it, the, the teaching strikes home in the lawyer's response. Well, who's my neighbor? Okay. If you go to the book of Romans... Paul says that the whole law is summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. He drops the first one. He just says it's summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what does loving your neighbor look like? I would argue it looks like the Great Commission, telling people about Christ, bringing them, bringing them into a saving relationship with them. But it's also the Cultural Commission. That is also an expression of the Great Commandment. Why? Well, first of all, if we believe that God loves us, and that he knows what's best for us, then that means we should expect that if we do things his way, it will result in the best for us and for our neighbors. Therefore, we must advocate for those kinds of things in culture. We need to work to see that embodied in culture out of love of neighbor. It also means that when we see things that are broken, that we, when we see things that are, are distorted or twisted or whatever, out of love of neighbor, we need to work to fix those things. When we see an opportunity to do something that is going to benefit our neighbor in developing our community or building a business or something like that, we do it out of love of neighbor. All of these things are an expression of the great commandment. And so I would say that, that there is no that if we understand things right, the Great Commandment ties together the Great Commission and the cultural mandate, because both of those are ways that that Great Commandment is expressed in life. It's probably a good point to wrap up. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea what the timing is around here, so. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, anyway, uh, enjoy some fellowship and we'll gather for worship at 11 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you.